You're in the water loop. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from Springpoint Partners and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop. Hey everyone, this is Travis with Waterloop. I want to talk to you for just a minute about High Sierra showerheads. I use them in my house because they're a water efficient fixture, but I'm a big fan for other reasons as well, including their design and construction. They're made of solid metal. So this High Sierra showerhead I have in my hand right now, you can tell that it's a quality, well-made product. Unlike the vast majority of shower heads, which involve a lot of plastic in their construction. And that's something we need less of, right? Less consumer products with plastic in them. The other awesome thing is their nozzle design. It's a unique patented nozzle that's not going to clog like so many other shower heads. The other thing about this nozzle is that it will work in low pressure. You'll still get a strong, powerful, but water-efficient shower. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by Flume. It's the perfect device for tracking your home's water use in real time on your smartphone. It's so easy to use. You just attach a small device to your water meter using a band, the same way you put a watch on your wrist. Then you connect to Wi-Fi, you download the app, and you're up and running. It's as simple as that. You don't need a plumber. You don't need to cut into any of your pipes or water lines. Very easy to set up. Then you can set water budgets, how much you want to use each day or week. It'll keep track of that. It'll tell you what's going on in your house with water use minute by minute. It'll send alerts to you if there's excessive water use or if it suspects a leak. In fact, when I installed Flume at my house, it told me almost right away about a leak. I was losing a gallon of water every six minutes. I'm honestly not sure when I would have found that without Flume. You can use promo code WATERLOOP for 10% off at flumewater.com. You're in the Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Very excited for a conversation today about making water decisions, water management decisions, especially around groundwater and the role of science and data and tech in that decision making. Have three guests for this episode. I have Ben Kerr. He is the founder and CEO of Foundry Spatial. Ben, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me, Travis. I have Melissa Rhodes. She is a groundwater scientist with the Nature Conservancy. Awesome title. Melissa, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. And I have Tom Gleason. He is an associate professor at the University of Victoria, along with uh, some many other hats he wears. Tom, glad you could come on too. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thanks for having us. So let's let's maybe start out with examples because I, I think I first connected with with Ben and, and his folks um, and the way that they're using science and data and tech tools in British Columbia and Alberta to make decisions about water. Um, what are some examples of how you're doing this? What what's your approach? Yeah, so so we're uh, we're focused at helping people get the information that they need to make make smart decisions about. Uh, human use of water. So um, that's typically a hard thing to do. You know, we don't know how much water there is everywhere across the landscape. 
So it often is a complex uh, process involving you know, scientists and uh, geologists and engineers typically to come up with estimates uh, uh, for locations in terms of what the water supply and demand looks like. Uh, so what we've done is we built a, a software platform that helps people um, uh, just engage with the information that they need to make decisions. So, so the software framework takes takes all the data, takes scientific models, takes databases of existing water rights, and puts all that stuff together into a really easy-to-use format so that people can just get the information they need uh, to make smart decisions. And I guess a, a big challenge is it's, it's a challenge just knowing how much water there is and where it is and how it moves around. I mean, is that, that, that sounds oversimplified, oversimplified, but is that kind of the gist of it, huh? Especially when you're talking about groundwater. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. So, um, you know, there's a, there's a ton of data that's out there, but it's typically hard to access, uh, hard to understand and hard to actually make it relevant to the decision that you're considering. Uh, so we're just trying to really kind of lift lift everybody up in terms of their ability to to access and understand, you know, robust science based information about water sustainability. Yeah. So what are what are some ways that you've kind of gone about this uh, uh, up there in in British Columbia and Alberta? Yeah. So we've uh, so it started off as uh, you know as as really just as a science project to see if we could come up with with uh, you know detailed detailed models to to provide a good representation of the hydrology across large areas. Uh, once we satisfied ourselves with that, the next question was you know how do we how do we get this people to or get this information to the people that need it, and, and that's those are those are people like uh, you know decision makers in government. Uh, those are the water user community, so a whole range of industries, and it's also um, you know all of the concerned public out there who you know who wants to see that their that their water is um, you know managed sustainably so that it continues to provide the you know the services that they enjoy, whether that's their drinking water, uh, recreational activities, or you know just the support of the ecosystems that they value. Uh, so we we took these these models that we we developed and then uh, adapted them into uh, into a web framework which which lets people you know interact in a really simple manner uh, same as you would on on google maps or something like that or airbnb you know you're sort of interested in the in the specific place that you're interested in and that's all you really need to know uh, so you can you can go in and choose the specific location on a stream or in an aquifer and then uh, acquire really detailed specific information uh, that describes what's going on at that location. So in, in Alberta and in, in BC there, um, there's been some decisions made or management of, of water, but using these tools. Yeah. So they use it, uh, they use it, uh, so when they're reviewing, reviewing new applications or if, uh, you know, if a water user is looking for a, for a viable source of water, mm. uh, it helps them in the planning process. And, um, uh, really kind of lets lets people jump over that you know the people will say you know 80 percent of the time on a project is is typically involved finding the data that you that you need and you know massaging it getting in getting it in the right shape so you can actually understand it so we try and cut out that 80 percent of time so that people can really spend more time on the high value uh, mm pieces, you know, interpreting what it means, uh, thinking about the implications of what they're doing, you know, um, consulting with with stakeholders and, and other interested parties. So they, everybody can kind of proceed from a, like a solid base of understanding about the, uh, the context at a location. 
this is these decisions are made looking at both surface water and groundwater. Just kind of curious about about how that works. Yeah, so we uh, so we've been doing this for about seven or eight years now, and uh, the primary focus at the outset was on surface water. Uh, so understanding, you know. Um, how and when water moves through watersheds, uh, you know, to streams and rivers and through lakes and wetlands uh, with with really not much consideration of the groundwater aspect. Um, so about about four years ago, um, I met I met Tom and we, we started having discussions about, you know, what what the potential would be to incorporate uh, groundwater dynamics, groundwater sustainability metrics into uh, into these decision tools, so that um, you know people could uh, have a, a more holistic view of of what's going on in terms of water across the landscape. Because um, you know the the impacts of groundwater groundwater withdrawals, uh, like over withdrawal of groundwaters, can be substantial, uh, especially in terms of how they can impact uh, stream flow. Uh, uh, during low flow times of the year so that you know when in the middle of summer when you know when it's been dry for you know a couple months yet the streams are still flowing the only reason that there's water in those streams is because of the supply from groundwater there so you know if you if you overuse groundwater and and withdraw too much of it then it'll you know lower the groundwater levels and then that groundwater won't flow into the streams mm -hmm. and if the water dries up in the stream that can have you know substantial impacts to uh, communities that depend on it to you know to the the animals that live in the streams you know that they, there's nowhere they can go if the water goes away so um, yeah. it's a really important uh, additional aspect to consider well, i want to ask tom um you know what are the information challenges for groundwater? You know, in my non-science speak, I was like, oh, it's tough to know how much there is and where it is. <laughs> Could you help out from a, a more scientific perspective and explain, you know, what the, what the challenges are for groundwater knowledge? Well, I think, uh, Travis, you're not that far off, actually. <laughs> um, you're, you're, you're pretty much, uh, even the most high, you know, uh, world-renowned hydrogeologist would basically describe it in a roughly similar way. I, I think uh, a great way to think about groundwater is that it's an invisible and undervalued resource. Mm -hmm. So that, that has very, those two aspects of really profound informational challenges. It means it's uh, hard to collect information and even probably possibly more profoundly is it's sometimes hard to care. Uh, we don't see it, we can't, we can't see it, it's, uh, it's invisible. Um, so a number of organizations have you know, been proactive and, and developed best practices and good systems. And I'll, I'll talk about a few of those, but also highlight some of the challenges. A good example for um, your audience in the United States is the USGS, which, which maintains a strong national uh, water observation and groundwater monitoring well network um, and has for years. But our colleagues, um, Scott Giseco and Deb Perrone um, at University of California, Santa Barbara, uh, started realizing a few years ago that, that the data in there is only part of the picture. And they actually spent uh, a, a multiple years trying to individually contact each state and collect groundwater information. This has been literally months and months of effort over years. Um, and, and it's still, they still have a few states um, that are, don't have data uh, provided. So this just shows you how um, challenging it is to collect even the most basic information about groundwater, like how, when a well was drilled and how deep it was drilled and what it was dri drilled into. And these informational challenges just compound um, significantly 
when we talk uh, or think about anywhere else in the world. Hmm. A few other nations have robust groundwater observation systems, but many nations around the world have very patchwork or um, uh, kind of um, insufficient groundwater um, monitoring and, and significant um, informational challenges. Yeah. Uh, Melissa, you know, working for the, the Nature Conservancy, groundwater scientist, you're based in California. Um, from, a, from a practical water management you know, standpoint, how does knowing more, having a lot more data about groundwater, being able to monitor it, um, you know, how, do you, how do you achieve that and then how is it used? Yeah, so more information is always helpful with management, but since more information costs money, that means that we need to prioritize data collection and analyses around very discrete and um, discrete goals and management decisions. So, in the case of sustainable groundwater management being a goal, uh, where groundwater is being managed to be shared for current and future societal, economic, and um, environmental uses, that means that we need to have an understanding of how groundwater conditions are impacting wells streams and uh, ecosystems. And so the, the big issue is that under many management regimes, there are significant data gaps on how groundwater conditions are affecting people and nature. And so there are a couple reasons for this. Uh, in addition to what you all have already alluded to, uh, that groundwater is already a technically complex thing in and of itself. Um, the first the issue is that um, not all groundwater users are created equal which means that not all data is created equal. And so some user groups have a uh, much larger political and economic power over others. Um, and this means that um, where we decide ultimately to place new wells or which data to collect and monitor networks are made by a select and privileged few in the you know, decision-making process. Uh, and this is because it takes time and resources to attend public meetings and comment on large technical documents uh, and essentially it creates this like large uh, participation barrier for some stakeholders such as disadvantaged communities and, and the environment. And often uh, data that would help monitor groundwater impacts to these types of users are not prioritized. Um, second uh, is that sustainable groundwater management is transdisciplinary. It draws on ex uh, expertise in their sciences, um, engineering, policy and law, economics, and ecology. And so, um, at least here in California, a lot of the groundwater sustainability plans that are being created and, uh, and um, which include monitoring network proposals um, or plans, uh, they're being drafted by engineering firms. And so that's why the stakeholder involvement is really key because if they're not in place, if stakeholders aren't involved um, to provide feedback on monitoring or data gaps, they go unacknowledged. And as a whole, you know, I, we've all heard this adage, um, maybe everyone's heard this adage, you can't manage what you can't measure. Uh, but in fact, what's actually happening is that the absence of evidence is often being used as the evidence of absence. So, for example, in many, any places, in many places, shallow monitoring wells along streams are a huge data gap in California uh, for mapping interconnected streams. But instead of filling those gaps, uh, and managing streams under the potential circumstance that they may in fact be interconnected. They're getting mapped as not interconnected at all. And so this is extremely dangerous in undermining sustainability goals. And so what I'm trying to say here is that having a comprehensive understanding of um, data gaps along with a healthy dose of the precautionary principle is just as important as having a lot of groundwater data um, when making management decisions. 
Yeah, sure. <laughs> Very interesting. Some great phrases there that I'm going to have to try to incorporate into my discussions and conversations. Really catchy, catchy stuff. Um, I, I, I want to just kind of dig a little bit more, no pun intended, on how uh, to get this information and do the monitoring, especially of groundwater. I mean, Ben has talked about kind of the, the tools they have, and I think you all have touched on it a little bit. But yeah, could we go deeper? Like how... How are you guys really trying to look at this groundwater? It's, it's, uh, I'm curious. Uh, there's essentially three opportunities I, I see. We have, um, as I mentioned earlier, that not all data is created equal. So the first opportunity is filling a funding gap that usually comes along with um, having, you know, to, to support the collection and the dissemination of information that help support these data gaps for traditionally marginalized groundwater users. Um, and so, um, this could be funding for installing shallow monitoring wells on the ground streams and in e ecosystems to monitor impacts to groundwater pumping or more water quality, uh, water quality monitoring in rural wells, for example. Um, the second is to enable data sharing across sectors. So, for example, the oil and gas sector um, has a pretty good understanding of deep, deep aquifers that are hydraulically connected to shallower um, aquifer systems that are primarily being managed for providing water supply. Uh, but since it's very costly and, and difficult to monitor deeper portion, portions of the basin, groundwater managers would um, significantly benefit from having access to this data, um, but currently do not have access because of proprietary restrictions. Uh, another example is like uh, having state and federal resource agencies, such as like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, that already have long-term existing monitoring programs for a range of species, um, you know, reaching, uh, working with GSAs um, to you marry that data with hydrologic data to understand how groundwater is potentially impacting those um, uh, ecosystems. Um, and then the last, which kind of relates to my first point, is to build easily accessible tools um, such as the one that uh, Ben was telling you about uh, to assess impacts to streams and ecosystems that can be used at both the project level and also regional planning purposes. Um, and so in the case of California, groundwater remains completely unregulated in large portions of the state. Um, and so analytical tools that could help assess whether or not development and construction projects are having adverse impacts to the environment, such as um, during like environmental compliance reporting, such as CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, would be really helpful uh, in um, preventing adverse impacts to streams and ecosystems, especially in the absence of regulation. Yeah. Which is the case locally. Echo in on, on on the last point Melissa was raising as well, and, and dig a little bit deeper uh, as yeah. you as you ask Travis uh, <laughs> uh, on on some of the science work that we've been doing uh, around these um, easily accessible tools that Melissa was just describing, and and she mentioned uh, we've been testing analytical solutions. So we've developed new. Um, tools um, in my research group in collaboration with um, Foundry um, Spatial to um, highly simplify and make it much more fast to make these uh, types of uh, first order decisions around what happens when we pump a well and how that impacts stream flow that is mostly relevant for um, environmental flows. So we, instead of creating highly complex and expensive uh, regional numerical models. We use uh, simple uh, analytical solutions in a, in a uh, mapping context that are linked to, to multiple streams to get a first order estimate 
of how pumping impacts um, streams and in, in these interconnected waterways um, that are important in California, British Columbia, and many other places. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, Tom, about that, um, just a little bit more about the connection between surface water and groundwater. Um, not everybody is a, is a scientist or has the knowledge that you guys, you know, have. And, and the idea that these what's up top and what's down below are actually there's a lot of connections there. Could you could you talk about that and, and how that connection factors into to management of water? Yeah, thank you. So, uh, you know, decades ago, groundwater and surface water were, were considered kind of two different uh, worlds. Uh, and uh, throughout the, the 90s and 2000s, people really advocated, and there was a great U.S., you know, important USGS report called Groundwater and Surface Water, a Single Resource. And I think that's an important thing that everyone kind of now recognizes. That the, probably the most obvious example that Ben already discussed was when, in the summertime, when uh, there is no ra significant rainfall or there's not a reservoir upstream. If there is water in that stream, it's probably groundwater. Groundwater mm -hmm. supports base flow in rivers around um, around the world and it is uh, highly important. But un unfortunately, groundwater and surface water are move at different um, uh, different speeds and uh, kind of over different kind of spatial patterns. So ground, surface water in streams uh, is fast and localized. It's always in the stream channel, whereas groundwater is very slow um, and is very distributed throughout um, the landscape. So these kind of fundamental differences in how the water resource is distributed uh, affects how um, information can be gathered um, about this interconnected resource. So what that, what it means is that um, stream gauges on rivers uh, are are very easy, relatively easy to install and gather information that integrates the stream flow over a whole watershed. Whereas uh, a single well, as uh, Melissa was alluding to earlier, uh, often don't exist, and they, in in many cases they don't represent the the full uh, condition of uh, of the groundwater under a watershed. So what that means in general is that we need um, many more wells uh, and we need, because groundwater moves so slowly, we need uh, much longer records in time, uh, mm -hmm. both of which we, we don't have. So the, the overall message is that yes, groundwater and surface water are entirely connected. They move at different time scales and they have different kind of information uh, requirements to be able to understand and, and manage them better. So, Tom, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, the emerging uses of science and, and tech in groundwater management. What's kind of happening now to, to do a better job of that? Yeah, two major uh, initiatives in the last uh, five to 10 years that have really um, are really important and really changing how we uh, hopefully how we manage water is the uh what's called socio-hydrology so the, the the there's a whole new field that's emerging that uh, studies the interactions between humans and water um and um quite frankly it, it tries to also make hydrologic science and all the science and engineering we do in academia more useful for society and decision makers so that's the first one and second is um the whole movement towards open science and which is trying to make um, uh, our scientific results, methods, 
and publishing all more publicly available. So these two kind of streams, and pun intended, I appreciate how you brought up puns earlier, uh, Travis, uh, of, uh, of, of, that I see really growing and, and becoming more important in science, uh, both come together around uh, these emerging technologies. Yeah. So in the, one of the examples is these online tools that we've been talking about that are useful for um, for, for mapping water resources in, 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 in uh, British Columbia and Alberta and, and, and uh, emerging in California. And so these bring together uh, the, the uh, making uh, scientific data uh, in a socially relevant way that, that are easily usable and digestible for water managers and having all the results and methods uh, in, a, in a very open and transparent way. So I think these are the these two thrusts of um, you know science, data, technology are, are coming together in these in these water tools. Well, as a longtime communications person, I'm really fascinated to have just learned that term socio-hydrology, and it makes a, a ton of sense. Uh, something else I'm going to have to educate myself on further and, and, and use. Since you mentioned the tools piece, um, I want to just go to Ben for a minute because um, – I'm also a big fan of maps and graphics and, and you know, data visualization. Uh, and, you know, we know that humans are very visual creatures. Um, what difference does it make to have these interfaces like the ones you guys have developed be so visually appealing? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Travis. It's so the, I'll answer that question in, in a, maybe a, a bit of a roundabout way. Uh, um, so we, over the last five or ten years, or you know, up to fifteen years since since Google Maps was introduced, uh, we've engaged with maps uh, much more intimately on the commercial products that we use in our day to day lives. So, um, products like Google Maps, products like Airbnb. Um, you know, there's the mapping component is a, is a key part of the information and that quick and rapid access to be able to find, you know, a restaurant that you're looking for or a place to stay in a different town. Um, and people have a, a really high expectation in terms of how easy that's going to be. Uh, and there's a big uh, rift between kind of the user experience that, that people are growing more accustomed to in their in their day-to-day -day lives and how technical tools or science-focused tools um, or like technical mapping applications that you might use, you know, from a city or whatnot, you know, there, there's a long way to go between where those are at and where they need to be to provide the same kind of user experience for people. Uh, so there's, you know, there's a lot of studies out there in terms of how quick you need to deliver information to people, especially the first time they visit a tool. Uh, to give them satisfaction, you know, that they're doing the right thing and that they're getting value out of the time that they're investing in it. So uh, a lot of times, like the internet's uh, littered with with uh, you know, tools that had great intentions, that people had a good idea, they had interesting data that they wanted to share with the world. But when the first time you go there and you spend, you know, a minute or two minutes or five minutes clicking around and trying how to trying to figure out how to do something, and then if you can't figure it out at the first time, you're highly unlikely to come back again. So, uh, one of the one of the highest benefits of these tools is really in making the science and the data transparent for those people who mm. who 
you know, should be able to engage in the discussions around, around management of water. And so we really look to look to those tools that are out there and, and borrow design patterns in terms of user interaction and, and uh, interface design to bring that same kind of experience to people who, who are looking for technical information. And we do that through a couple of ways by, by borrowing those some sort of techniques and then also by providing kind of a hierarchy of, of information. So, you know, uh, it's engageable and understandable for people who don't have a background in, in you know, science or engineering. Uh, and then progressively provides more detail down to, you know, hyper-specific, you know, variability and frequency statistics and those kind of things for the, for the technical folks who, who uh, have more complex needs in terms of information. Well, I also want to turn to Melissa here. Uh, California, you know, has is under a water crunch, has been for a while, will be for the foreseeable future, right? Groundwater is a critical resource. Um, just curious about, um, you know, as California looks to groundwater, as try, they try to make policy decisions, management decisions, um, what role, you know, these types of tools might might play? Yeah, they, they play a, a really big, I think they have a potential to play a really large role. Um, so we had this, you know, this law that passed in 2014 called the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. And it applies to, um, you know, primarily large alluvial aquifers that are um, uh, existing in the Central Valley. And, and so there are large portions of the state that are completely unregulated. Um, uh, this is mostly like fractured hard rock and um, volcanic aquifers in the coastal and Sierras, um, the low and very low priority basins in the desert regions, and then also um, very deep groundwater, um, um, which is considered brackish underneath um, uh, these large alluvial basins in this valley. So um, there are a lot of uh, opportunities. So e even in the absence of stigma regulation, there are other laws that are in effect um, and compliance that needs to be done in order to ensure that um, uh, new proposed projects aren't going to have an impact on the environment. However, those tools are not available. So, um, so for for example, um, if you uh, if somebody was trying to do develop a project in a fractured hard rock aquifer up in the you know the, in the coastal mountain range, for example, um, and they want to know what the potential impacts are to the to the streams and the ecosystems, it's very difficult to figure that out because there aren't large models, um, numerical models that are in existence. There's no uh, sustainability agency to to reach out to to understand how that project might impact. Uh, the ecosystem. And so having like a web-based tool that uses analytical, has in, integrates analytical approaches to understand potential impacts to of groundwater pumping to the streams and ecosystems would be absolutely transformational in, in giving information to people that are, are um, trying to understand the impacts of different projects. Um, and so that's one, one use. But then also in California, you know, I think as humans, there's a, a natural tendency to always try to evade the law, right? And so, uh, <laughs> or try to find a way to, where you have more flexibility. And so with SIGMA, you're going to have these pumping cuts. And so there is um, likely going to be a translocation of pumping issues outside of these SIGMA basins to these, non these unregulated areas. And so one example of this is, um, uh, is with cannabis cultivation. So cannabis cultivated, you know, it's recently legal to grow cannabis. 
um, and um, their junior water rights holders. And so um, they, um, they, they, they have less priority to access surface water. And so previously it was assumed that um, cannabis cultivators were using surface water primarily. But then um, there was a survey done um, that found that uh, cannabis cultivation, 60% of cannabis cultivators were using groundwater irrigation. And so um, there are interim water use regulations for legal cannabis cultivation in California that prohibit surface water diversion during the dry season in order to protect salmon, but they don't limit groundwater use right now. And, and so um, th this makes, it, so it makes it an attractive uh, water source to be using groundwater instead of mm. surface water. And so there's an opportunity with the um, with uh, the state water resources control board's interim cannabis cultivation policy to to look at you know there's tools available for them to assess whether or not cannabis pumpers could have an impact on nearby streams that would be very helpful in the absence of other groundwater regulation. Sure, fascinating stuff. Uh, so much good information perspective from you all. I have to acknowledge that. Uh, the incredible work that Ben did to have Victoria Waterworks uh, behind him there—that's um, that's well played. Uh, but but thanks to all three of you for the perspective and information. Um, so much to dig into. Uh, but I, I, yeah, appreciate all you shared today. Thank you. Thank you, Travis. Thanks for having us, Travis. Waterloop, Waterloop. Thanks everyone for listening to today's episode. A special thanks to Waterloop supporters, Springpoint Partners, and the Walton Family Foundation. The Waterloop podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish way to save energy, water, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Save 20% with promo code Waterloop at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Waterloop is also sponsored by Flume, the smart water monitor that tracks your home's water use in real time and provides data on your smartphone. Save 10% with promo code WATERLOOP at flumewater.com. If you like Waterloop, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit waterloop.org to sign up for updates. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.